But uh, this event coming up on Saturday is we'll have probably 400 people come out. And they're telling me, I've never been to this event, but they're telling me that we'll get somewhere between 100 and 300,000 pounds of produce, sweet potatoes. And that, this is insane to think about because the most I've ever seen gleaned at one event was 35,000 pounds. And so I know how much that is, which is an insane amount of food. And so at first, my whole family was going to go with me. They were, you know, oh, yeah, we'll go to the fall festival. It'll be fun. But since we've had the fair experience, uh, everybody's wore out. I went home yesterday. It's true. I never do this. Never. Went home yesterday, and at like 4.30, I slept for like three hours. Just because I had been up for like Monday night. I had a podcast I recorded with some friends, and it was supposed to start at 8 and end at like 9, 9.30. I didn't get home till 11 o'clock. Tuesday, went to the fair. I didn't get home until 10.30. And the prior weekend, I had been going and going and going with gleanings and scouts and church and all this other stuff. So I was like, look, I am just exhausted. So, But... You know, I slept good. Because the nap was awesome. So, but uh, yeah. So, gotta run. All right. Chapter seven. We started talking about it on Tuesday. We'll wrap up this chapter today. Start talking about money. What do we say about money? Anybody remember anything we discussed about money? It's you buy goods and services with it. What else? What else do we say about money? It's a medium of exchange. Remember that? What do we say a medium of exchange is? It's a way to transact, correct. It's a way to take uh, commodities, turn them into uh, dollars. Those dollars can be traded for other commodities, right? So the commodity that we all have is talent, whatever that might be. May be. Your talent might be... Uh, waitressing or your talent might be teaching a class or your talent might be washing a car or repairing homes and selling them whatever it may be that's the commodity the value you bring and so you trade that commodity of time and talent for dollars then you take those dollars and you exchange them for other commodities whether they be goods or services um, the other good thing we mentioned about money is that it's uh, a use for uh, the, this interchange or the medium of exchange and um, that's the, we'll get into the mobile payment thing, but uh, it's a store of value. We said that money was a store of value. If you hold on for money for a little while, it'll retain that buying power for the short term. But remember, what do we also say about money that happens <coughs> over long periods of time? Cash, what happens to cash over long periods of time? It loses its buying power, why does that happen? Okay, yeah, as the supply increases, um, it causes inflation to occur. And when inflation occurs, that's where it takes more and more money to purchase the same product or service. And when that happens, the money that you have decreases in its buying power. And so the example I said on Tuesday was like, you know, if you put a $100 bill in the bank, leave it in there for 10 years at 1% interest, you know, you're going to have more money after 10 years but that money will have less buying power. It's really, you have to wrap your mind around that. Think about it. If inflation's at 3%, you're actually losing 20% of buying power over that 10-year period. And so now that $100 is only going to be able to buy around $80 worth of product or service, whatever it may be. And so I also talked about the grandma story, you know, buying things with a nickel. Remember that? 
a dollar a quarter. You go to the go to the movies, buy candy. Yeah, inflation. If you look at the dollar over a long period of time, say a hundred years, you can see how the buying power has kind of tanked over time. And even in my my lifetime, I mean, I'm not old yet, but just a couple decades ago, I remember when I turned 16, gas was 88 cent a gallon. Wow, you know, you think about how awesome it'd be to have 88 cent a gallon gas now, right? And so, yeah, I remember when I got my first career-based jobs working at Walmart, I worked in the Whiteville store, which was 60 miles away, and gas went from 150 to 250 in one summer. And, it, oh no, it was actually one fall. Gas, it was, it was some type of crisis that occurred. And it was just a very much a financial shock to not just me, but a lot of people. And I actually put in a request for transfer primarily for well, two reasons. The gas was one factor, but the just the commute was murder. I mean, because I would get off at 10 o'clock at night and get home about 1130 and have to be back at 7 a.m. on some schedules. And so, yeah, it was really just brutal. It was something I couldn't sustain for long periods of time. And then the last, uh, we said money was a unit of, of account. Helps us keep up with the value of things. So I'm going to kind of just go through these very briefly because we talked about them already. But the medium of exchange, it allows for things to be divisible. It's portable. It's durable. And it must be difficult to counterfeit. We talked about all those things. Um, remember that I said that you could run the whole world economy on $1 bill. Right? Just remember, remember we talked about that briefly? I know that's still hard to wrap your mind around, but um, the reason why is like, if you say all the money in the world is one, one dollar, but you can really break that down into a lot of different decimal points, right? You can just really divide it on down into really an infinite amount, if you, especially if you're doing it digitally. And if so, Nobody wants to look at it in this format, so that's why we don't run the world economy this way. But you could easily come up with some system like uh, however many zeros, let's say there's 15 zeros, you could say, you know, like, how much money do you have in your account? Instead of looking at it from this perspective, you could say, uh, you got 15 zeros in front of it, and then you've got, you know, $1,237, you know, or, or fractions of fractals of a dollar, whatever it may be. And so that's just another way of looking at it. I know it's more difficult to do it that way, which is why we don't do it that way. You know, but uh, hypothetically, we could run the whole world economy on $1 bill. So um, we talked about sort of value and unit of account already. Uh, we talked about commodities. What are commodities? You remember? Objects that have value. Right, and it's... A bunch of different things, you know, spices, um, animal products, um, fruits, vegetables, those types of things, um, gold, silver, other metals. A lot of different things are commodities, timber. And so uh, the market buys these commodities in bulk, you know, oil is another one, but they buy them in, in bulk orders. And it's, those uh, types of commodities are also supply and demand driven. You know, if, if all of a sudden our society were able to and willing to go completely uh, off of fossil fuels, we're just going to go, all our cars are going to be electric, and we're just not going to support that, that type of fuel anymore. Man, what do you think it would do to the demand of oil you know, as a commodity? It would tank, right? And so um, many things in our society are supply and demand driven. And so there's always a vested interest 
and the people that provide those goods and services to keep the price up. We also talked about mobile payments briefly and talked about Apple Pay and Google Wallets. And so now we started talking about banks and this idea of banks really are a third party that allows for you to have somewhere to put your money and allows for us to have a national way to transact and to bring some ease of transactions where you don't have to actually have cash on you all the time in order to to uh, purchase commodities, whatever they may be, goods or services. And so um, 1863, Lincoln uh, brought about this National Banking Act, which uniformed the currency. So we have a sole national currency. And once again, just for convenience purposes, because imagine like if you travel to South Carolina and you had to exchange a currency and then you had to travel to Virginia, you have to exchange currency. It's kind of the idea behind the Euro, you know, where we have many countries come, it's, it's a little similar, but a little different. With the United States, we're all under the, the national system of we're one country, but with the Euro, it's multiple countries coming under the banner of one type of uh, currency. A little different, but similar concepts. We also talked about uh, tracking the supply money, uh, other kinds of currencies. So cash in your wallet certainly serves as money. Uh, we talked about checks and credit cards. Are they money too? What, what did we say? Is a check money or is a credit card money? Are you sure? No. no, I'm not sure. <laughs> That's okay. It's actually not money, but it serves as a tool to facilitate money transfer. So if I just pull out like 10 checks, there's nothing special, like I haven't signed them or done any type of endorsement or uh, put any writing on them, they mean nothing. But the fact that I write them to someone or something and I sign it, that's basically a command. It's saying, hey, I'm gonna allow you to take this amount of money from my account and put it into this other account. So these, these are basically tools that allow us to uh, facilitate money transfer. And so we have the M1 and M2 types of banks. We talked about these already, but just to go over it briefly, M1, is looks at money supply in one particular lens. It includes coins and currency in circulation, how much physical money is out there not held in, at reserve or bank vaults. It looks at checkable deposits, also known as demand deposit accounts, held in checking accounts. So physical money, checking accounts. Banking institutions must give the deposit holder his or her money on demand when a check is written or a debit card is used. Traveler's checks are also used in M1, that have recently decreased in use. And we said, you know, most people, I don't think, use travel checks. I've never used one. Not to say they're not good. I've just never had an opportunity to use one. And so an M2 is a broader category of money. It includes everything in M1, but also adds other types of deposits, savings, money market, and certificates deposits. All these types of M2 are money that you can withdraw and spend, but which require greater effort to do so. And so, I guess the reason why they classify these two different types is one is more liquid, the other is a little less liquid, but still accessible, but you have to take an extra step in order to make that happen. And so the thought is when you're looking at that M1, you're looking at the supply of money from a ultra liquidity standpoint, meaning people can access this any moment and it's a very you know, liquid uh, or easily accessible form of cash or money. This M2, also liquid, but 
not quite as easy to get a hold of. You have to take an extra step to do so. And so this is just a way that the Federal Reserve can kind of keep a pulse of the monetary supply in our economy. Why do you think that's important? Why do you think it's important for regulators to kind of keep an eye on money supply and what it's doing, how it's moving around? What do you think? Right, it's one, it's one reason, yeah. To, it's, it's basically, one thing I, I teach in the business program is that cash is like air and blood to your uh, body. So a business can't survive without you know, cash, just like a body can't survive without air and blood. And so if cash dries up, the economy shuts down. If cash dries up in a business, uh, the business will shut down. And so banks and the regulators have to keep an eye on cash supply and know what their obligations are or what the demands of the cash supply will be in order to gauge, hey, do we need to print more money or uh, what, you know, what type of monetary policy steps do we need to take to ensure we're going to meet our needs, not only on a daily basis, but uh, each week, each month, and each year going forward. And so they're able to study this and understand through trend analysis uh, and other metrics what uh, would be good policy going forward. Sometimes, though, they make mistakes. They don't always, they're not, you know, oracles. They can't always predict what the needs are going to be or what type of uh, problems lie around the corner. But by tracking these things, it helps them to better understand the system and to make adjustments as need be. So any questions so far on any of that stuff? Okay, we talked about credit and debit cards. Um, main difference is debit card, the money's coming directly out of your accounts. Credit card is a short-term loan, and it's coming from the creditor's account. And so like you're getting access to cash <coughs> Uh, which can be a good thing, but on the downside, if you don't pay it back immediately, you're automatically going to start, start hitting some interest payments on that. And so bank intermediaries, this is uh, kind of where we left off on Tuesday. And so bank, uh, banks make it far easier for a com complex economy to carry out extraordinary range of transactions that occur in goods, labor, and financial markets or financial capital markets. Banks are critical intermediary and what is called the payment system, which helps an economy exchange goods and services for money or other financial assets. An intermediary is one who stands between two other parties. Banks are a financial intermediary, that is, an institution that operates between a saver who deposits money in a bank and a borrower who receives a loan from that bank. All the funds deposited are mingled into one big pool, which is then loaned out. And so banks use all our collected money into one big pool. They have that pool of resources, and then they use that money to loan it out for interest. So borrowers can come and get access to capital in order to buy cars, buy homes, what other projects, start a business. But um, so it's kind of a, I can use this bank in order to do the things I need to do to save, to hold my money, to pay me a little interest, to use it for other financial services, but because the bank is allowing me to do this, they're gonna use my money to loan out to make for profit, you know? And so, uh, like if a loan goes out and the interest rate is 6%, you know, the bank's gonna keep a big chunk of that and they're just gonna pay you a marginal percentage on that. But, you know, then again, you're putting your money up uh, as, you know, kind of a convenience for you. And, the, and sometimes a lot of banks don't charge for savings. 
Does anybody pay a monthly banking fee for savings or checking? No, that's kind of going out the window. You do? Yeah, well, I ain't paying to use the charity. It's going to a charity? Okay, well, that's a no, that's different, yeah. But, yeah, you, if, you don't, if you're getting charged to hold your money in the bank. It's a BBT. Yeah, well, BBT. I hated them. Right? Yeah, well, they charged us 15 Me and my right. husband. It was a $15 maintenance fee. For, per month? Just, yeah, just a maintenance fee. Per month? Per month. Yeah, Southern Bank has got like a 6 or $8. For checking. Per, per month? For saving, if it's under, if your saving balance is under 200 right. then they charge you a $6 service fee. State employees just uh, charges a dollar for their uh, right. hospice or something. Yeah, like that. Right, right. Wow. So, um, do what you like, but try to, you know, that's one, I mean, I'm not perfect in this regard either. There's, there's fees that I pay every once in a while that I'm like, why am I paying this fee? And so, like, you, you always should try to, like, keep it on that because that little bit of stuff ends up being, you know, money. You know, if you look at all these little extra fees and stuff you pay, it ends up adding up to being a lot of money that and you could BBT avoid. BBT charges you for, like, a, um, a traveler's check. Right. When you're traveling abroad, they charge you for a traveler's check. And then just for, like, um, what is it? cashier's check or whatever right. you call it. They would charge us a fee for that too. Sure, yeah. So I have an account at State Employees, but I also have an account at Wood Forest, which they're very different types of banks. Um, I got the Wood Forest account when I worked at Walmart as like a just an easy access bank because it's right there in the store. Um, but I continue to use it mainly because I hate going to the bank. And if I'm in Walmart anyway, I can take care of some banking. And they're open seven days a week, so that's extra convenience. Um, but you know, Woodforce does charge high fees for certain financial services. Like if I wanted a cashier's check, it's like 15 bucks or something like that. And it's rare that I have to do that though. It's, you know, every once in a while when I get a large payment that I want to move to another account or something, I might do that, but it's like once a year maybe, you know, so. Um, yeah, but keep an eye on those fees though. That's one of those things that banks will get you with. So. The Federal Reserve System, there's a central bank, the organization responsible for conducting monetary policy that ensures that a nation's financial system operates smooth, smoothly. These guys have a lot of power and a lot of oversight and they have a lot of responsibility because if they make bad calls, they could collapse the economy. And so they, they very much keep their finger on the pulse of what's happening with uh, monetary supply, monetary policy, and give guidance to business as to you know, this is how we should uh, handle our monetary policy. So most nations have central banks or currency boards. Some prominent central banks around the world include European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, and the Bank of England. In the United States, the central bank is called the Federal Reserve, often abbreviated as the Fed. This section explains the organization of the U.S. Federal Reserve and identifies the major responsibilities of a central bank. And so, its organization and structure the Federal Reserve is a semi-decentralized mixing, or it is semi-decentralized, mixing government appointees with representation from private sector banks. Uh, you know, it is kind of on the surface, and it's supposed to be kind of um, autonomous from the government, meaning that you know, the president or Congress or anybody can't tell the Fed what to do. They're going to do what's in the best interest of the economy. That's not always the case, though. You know, like, um, it's supposed to be that they act autonomously and make decisions for the best interests of the economy. But 
as I as I've witnessed, I believe I've seen the Fed do some things that were uh, political. You know, and just go ahead and call it call it what you see. Uh, right right now, for example, I feel like the Fed is artificially keeping the economy floating. Um, they're printing money and giving it away, like I talked about with the uh, $75 billion uh, a day injections into the banking system. They're cutting interest rates when the markets are at all-time highs, which makes no sense. <coughs> the only thing that, that does make sense is if you want to keep the stock market from collapsing, which is getting harder and harder to do. So let me give you the example of how this, this works in an in easier way. Imagine somebody is a heart attack victim. They could, they're about to have a heart attack, but instead of waiting for them to have a heart attack, you go ahead and put a defibrillator on the chest and start hitting it and give them uh, like adrenaline shots. I mean, but they haven't had the heart attack yet, right? This is a, a good example of what's happening in our economy right now. Like the, the stock market is at all time highs. There's all kinds of financial metrics out there that are warning signs saying, uh, things just don't look as good as they do on paper or, or the, the rose-colored lenses in which the market's been portrayed. Uh, and basically, it's unhealthy for a, a market to be artificially stimulated through printing of cash and uh, cutting of interest rates. And so eventually, it leads to a bigger you know, bottom and so, or a bigger bust. So we'll see, but I'm just kind of, you know, the stock market was down 500 points yesterday. What does that mean? Who knows? But uh, we'll see what it does today. There's so many like factors that go into it, it's hard to predict. But at the national level, it run, it's run by a board of governors, the Fed is, consisting of seven members appointed by the President of the United States and confirmed by the Senate. Policy decisions of the Fed are not, do not require congressional approval, and the President cannot ask for the resignation of a Federal Reserve governor as the President can uh, with cabinet positions. One member of the Board of Governors is designated as the chair. The current chair is Janet uh, Yellen. The Fed also includes 12 regional Federal Reserve banks, each of which is responsible for supporting the commercial banks and economy generally in its district. Janet Yellen uh, is not the current Fed Reserve Chairman. Um, I'm trying to remember who it is. I'll have to look it up in a moment. I'll pull it up in a second. If somebody wants to look up Fed Reserve Chair, you don't have to, but I'll look it up in a minute. So Janet Yellen is not the person, though. So, All right. And so talking about what does the central bank do, the Federal Reserve, like most central banks, is designed to perform the following three important functions. They conduct monetary policy. They promote stability of the financial system and provide banking services to commercial banks and other depository institutions and to provide banking services to the federal government. So... They're basically the bank to other banks. They provide the policy by which we operate uh, our banking services, and they also provide the banking services to the United States government. So there's a lot, as you can see, of responsibilities in the Federal Reserve. So yeah. who you got? Jerome Powell? Yeah, Jerome Powell's our current. Thank you for pulling that up. Um, yeah, I remember Yellen left, and it was not under good terms that she left. So Jerome Powell, um, I mean, I remember several. Uh, I remember Alan Greenspan. Uh, what was the other guy's name? There was another one after Greenspan, but um, oh gosh, Geithner was one of them. Um, and so, yeah, each one of these guys that are in the Federal Reserve position, 
uh, or the chair of the Federal Reserve, man, it's just so like brutal what they have to go through sometimes because everybody's looking to them for fixing financial problems. And the thing that you, that you don't really hear about is that some of this stuff is bigger than the organization can handle. I mean, monetary policy in the United States is big because the dollar is the world reserve currency, but that doesn't mean that we can control what happens in all economies. And I mean, they're just unintended consequences and economies do go through cycles of growth and uh, retrenchment. So it's, it's, you know, it's just a tough place to be when you're trying to always have a economy that's winning. It's just, it's just not, it's not gonna do that all the time, so. So monetary policy, open market operations, central bank sells or buys treasury bonds to influence bank reserves and interest rates. The Federal Open Market Committee makes decisions regarding these operations. Changing reserve requirements to raise or lower percentage of each bank's deposits as they are legally required to hold as cash in their vault. More cash uh, held, less available to lend out. And so they want to lend the maximum they can because as they lend, that's money coming back to them, but they also want to have cash on hand for liquidity. So imagine, you know, you get paid, use the $100 example. So I get paid and I, I go ahead and spend that $100. Now I have zero liquidity. I have no money if something pops up. So what do I have to do? I have to go borrow money now. It's not good. But imagine you get paid that same 100 and you save 20%. Well, now you've spent, you know, you spent your 80, but now you got that 20 just in case something happens that you need that extra liquidity. <laughs> so that's the, that's the balancing act that banks do on a much larger scale. They're trying to figure out what's that sweet spot? How much can I lend out and still have the right amount of liquidity uh, in our reserves just in case, you know, there's a run on the bank, people need cash and liquidity. That's one of the things that lend, led to the financial collapse in 2007-8 was that they had over leveraged, they had lent out uh, way more money than they could uh, have access to on a short-term basis. And basically, as the market started to unhealthily, was unhealthy and started to collapse, people needed cash. And so they started pulling cash out of the market, but banks didn't have that much liquidity to give. So it just created a credit crisis. Um, if we have time, I'll show a brief video about it because it's really interesting. If we don't get time today, I'll show it next week, but really, really interesting stuff and it happened in our lifetime. So, um, Changing the discount rate, banks can borrow money from the Fed, must pay interest. This is a discount rate. Lower chance of run on the bank. Banks must have money to lend out and invest. Correct. And traditionally, old school runs on the bank where, where you see and you may see it again. I mean, this happened in Greece um, not too many years ago where people were lined up outside the banks. They were smashing ATMs to get access to cash when they ran out of money. Uh, and so... Who uh, helped them out? It was a combination of um, the uh, International Monetary Fund and other large lenders around the world. So, I mean, but, uh, you know, if we have a collapse like that, who's going to bail out the world reserve currency? I mean, you know, so... This goes back to this original idea of anything can be cash, right? Or anything can be money. And so uh, if we had a major <coughs> currency issue, the immediate answer would be commodities. People would turn to silver, gold, and other tradable assets that people had demand for, you know. Um, but I hope we never get to this commodity-based thing again because of a, a big disa financial disaster. But 
we were very, very close last time in 2007-8. We were so close to the edge of disaster. Most Americans have no idea, like, it would have been a Great Depression if we had not had the government step in and throw in so much money to get us off the cliff. But here's the problem with that. I mean, this is all theoretical economics because nobody can tell me what the consequences are of being $22 trillion in debt because we've never been there before. And so, like, eventually that bubble could burst. And the problem is it's like we're in a very much a showdown with other economies around the world. It's like every other economy is pointing two guns at everybody else. You know, you've seen those standoffs. And if they want to bring down our economy as a as an economic battle, if they say we want to drop your economy because we don't like you, the problem is there'll be unintended consequences for their economy. And so if they collapse the U.S. economy, their, their economy is probably going to collapse also. And so that's the one reason why we allow this show game to continue. And it's all monopoly money, you know. Uh, and so I don't, I don't know the long-term uh, consequences of the debt, but in my lifetime it's done nothing but just keep going up. So um, it's really at a point now where it's obscene. So, like, there is no choice but to, for it to increase, really, I mean, because they have to keep borrowing to pay the interest, you know. So the circle gets bigger, you borrow to pay interest, circle gets bigger. I mean, so really, really nuts. All right, and this last section for the chapter is about capital. Um, firms often make decisions that involve spending money in the present and expecting to earn profits in the future. They need economic resources to do so, which is financial capital. They can raise capital in four ways. Uh, venture capital, which is an investment from an investor. They can uh, reinvest profits, borrow through banks or bonds, or they can sell stock. So <clears throat> interesting ways to raise money. Um, and you've got to have capital. You got to, I mean, you've you probably heard this, it takes money to make money, right? Money makes the world go round. Very much so. I mean, you might have to spend, you know, $200,000 in your business to make that first 100,000, you know, the first year. It takes a couple years to recover that investment sometimes. And so looking at the different various ways, banks versus bonds, when a firm has a record of at least earning significant revenues or better still of earning profits, that the firm can make a credible promise to pay interest. So it becomes possible for the firm to borrow money. Yeah, if you just walk into a bank, first time entrepreneur, you have no real revenue, you have no real profits, they're not gonna laugh at you, but they're gonna nicely tell you to come back in five years, right? Yeah, sometimes they laugh. Can you believe this person walked to the bank? The better strategy, in my opinion, is to save your money, uh, open a small business that requires no or little capital to start, like whether it be washing cars or uh, I, I know I've thrown out food truck, that is a little small amount of capital intense, you know, at the beginning, but selling things online, whatever it may be, to generate a few extra hundred dollars a month. And you think, man, you know, a few extra hundred dollars a month, it's going to take me forever. Well, imagine if you can do something on the side, you grind on the side, you make two to three hundred dollars a month. That's twenty-four hundred to thirty-six hundred dollars a year extra that you're grinding towards your business. You know, in I don't know, three or four years, you got ten grand. That's a significant amount of money to do something with. I mean, you can really uh, start a small business. I mean, there's all kinds of small business you can start with that or less. And so, you know, you do what you got to do. And then once you start the business. You've got sales, you've got profit, 
then you can talk about capitalization to do even more. So but it's always best just to start from nothing and make your own way, you know, and grind. So that's, that's really, I think, the best way to do it. And that way you don't owe anybody anything, and if it doesn't work out, you've, not, you've lost nothing but your time, and you probably learned something, so you really didn't lose anything at all. So firms have two main methods of borrowing, banks and bonds. Bank bar- borrowing is relatively easier for small firms. Bond borrowing is often used by large and well-known firms. And so bank loans, a bank loan for a firm works in much in the same way a loan for an individual who's buying a car or a house. Firms borrow an amount of money and then promise to repay it, including some rates of interest over a predetermined period of time. If the bank fails to make its loan payments, I'm sorry, if the firm fails to make its loan payments, the bank or banks can often take the firm to court and require it to sell its buildings or equipment to make the loan payments. (coughs) Yeah, you're going to get some liens put on you at some point if you don't make your payments. A bond is a financial contract. It's basically saying when you buy a bond, that organization, whether it be a company or government, is saying we're going to give you this money back with interest at a predetermined amount or interest rate. A borrower agrees to repay the amount that was borrowed and also a rate of interest over a period of time in the future. A corporate bond is issued by a firm, but bonds are also issued by various levels of government such as municipal and treasury bonds. A bond specifies an amount that will be borrowed, the interest rate that will be paid, and the time until repayments. Bondholder, anyone who owns a bond and receives the interest payments. So. I, don't, I use this term loosely, but bonds are considered a safer investment. There's still risks to them, but generally considered a safer investment than equities or stocks. Um, and the, the downside of that safety, though, is less risk, less reward. So generally, the return on investment can be less. But if you buy a terrible stock and they don't perform well, you've lost money there due to that higher risk. And so. Um, Financial advisors advise having a blend of stocks and bonds in your investment portfolio. I know we haven't talked about it much in this class. Uh, I did mention the podcast does go into that some. Um, Just check the email. There's some information there about it. But there is an example. So a large company, for example, might issue bonds for $10 million. The firm promised to make interest payments on an annual rate of 8% which is 800,000 per year, and then after 10 years, it will repay the 10 million it originally borrowed. When a firm issues bonds, the total amount that is borrowed is divided up. A firm that seeks to borrow 50 million by issuing bonds might actually issue 10,000 bonds of 5,000 each. In this way, an individual investor could, in effect, loan the firm $5,000 or any multiple of that amounts. And so they do break them up into smaller amounts. Some, um, you can go into and buy bond mutual funds though that allow you to put in smaller amounts. Like you can invest just a few hundred dollars and own a piece of that mutual fund that it goes out and it buys various bonds. Lots of different opportunities there. And so let's talk about stock or equities. Those two terms are interchangeable, by the way. And so stock corporations owned by shareholders that have limited liability for the debt of the company but share in the profits and losses. Corporations may be public or private. They may raise funds to finance their operation or new investments by raising capital through the sale of stock (coughs) or issuance of bonds. Stock represents ownership of a firm. So, how and when does a company get money from the sale of a stock? 
Firms receive money from sale of stock when the company sells its stock to the public. An IPO is the firm's first sale to the public primary market. Most of the time, when corporate stock is bought and sold, however, the firm receives no financial return at all. If you buy a share of stock in General Motors, you almost certainly buy them from the current owner of those shares. And General Motors does not receive any of your money. So if you're buying that, that, bond, that uh, share of stock on the secondary market, you still you can't differentiate between the two. But basically, as the firm issues stock, those shares are bought up by the market and then bought and resold on, the, on that market over and over again. And supply and demand controls how that price goes up and down. What rate of return does the company promise to pay when it sells stock? Zero. When a firm decides to issue stock, it must recognize that investors expect to receive a rate of return, but there is no guarantee. That rate of return can come in two forms. A firm can make a direct payment to its shareholders called a dividend, based on how much profit they make, they can issue a dividend that pays uh, per share. Alternatively, the financial investor might buy a share of stock in Walmart for $45 and then later sell that share of stock to someone else for $60 for a gain of $15. The increase in the value of the stock or of any asset between when it's bought and when it's sold is called a capital gain. And so when you sell uh, stock, you pay capital gains tax on the profit that, or, or well, if you have a loss, you don't pay taxes, but if you have a profit, uh, you will pay capital gain tax on that profit. So, Who makes decisions in a company owned by a large number of shareholders? So a private company owned by people who run it on a day-to-day -day basis. Stock is not sold to the public. Stock uh, sold in exchange privately uh, between a very small, limited amount of investors. Can be small or large companies like Mars Candy Company. A public company, stock is sold to the public. Shareholders own public corporations. Shareholders vote for a board of directors who in turn hire top executives to run the firm on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, the more shares of stock, uh, of stock a shareholder owns, the more votes that shareholder is entitled to. Cast for the company's board of directors. <clears throat> board of directors help to ensure that the firm is run in the interest of the true owners, the shareholders. However, management has a voice in the nominations. And so, um, that wraps up the discussion on Chapter 7, Financial Markets and Systems. Anybody have any questions about the content of Chapter 7? Yes, ma'am. Uh, so I have a question about the scenario that Okay. The question is, explain to Emily what the various options she has for the business. Okay. Are they asking... Like, so, yeah, good question. Real quick on that. So, these four ways. But what would be the best way for her to, to do that. Um, I'm not gonna give you the answer because that would be giving you the wrong question, but this, you have to pick which one of those is most appropriate. I will say selling stock is probably the least appropriate. So you guys figure that out, okay? All right, thank you. All right, no problem. All right, guys, I appreciate your time and attention. Have a great weekend, get some rest, and we'll see you guys next Tuesday. We got fall, fall break coming up pretty quick. Mm -hmm. It's like the 14th, so that's excellent. Thank <laughs> you.